Section 1 of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Marianne Spiegel. Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. Chapter 1 Aunt Hannah's Letter to Her Sister. Maplewood, January 15th. 1889. My dear Jane, you know it is just thirty years today since you were married and started on your long journey. How dreadful it seemed to us older ones then to give up our little sister to foreign missionary work. It was harder than you knew, for we felt just as if we were giving you up to death. Thirty years is a long time, but it doesn't seem such a stretch to me now as it did then. It is surprising how time goes along. I'm getting old, but I don't believe it. Although you've been home three times to see us, I always think of you as looking just as you did the day you were a bride. We shall think of you as we do of our friends who go to heaven young. You will always be young to us. I remember I thought it was almost wicked to sacrifice you, such a pretty fresh flower to be buried in that wild land. The Lord has taught me better. Now I am glad that our family gave up the brightest treasure they had to his service— I think he has blessed us more ever since. I have a piece of news for you. John is going to be married. You don't know all that means to me. It means a lonesome life. You know, Johnny was only five years old when Sister Margaret died and gave him to me. You cannot think what a comfort he has been. It doesn't seem as if I could have lived that summer after I was left alone in the world if I had not had the dear boy to care for and make living seem worthwhile again. I felt as though I had been a success in training one boy at least. To be sure, he was an uncommon child, and had a fine start when I took him, because he had a remarkable mother. She had taught him to obey perfectly, and that is half the battle, to my thinking. He has always been a good, obedient boy, not one of your pokey ones, either. He is just running over with fun, too, this day. He is smart, too. They tell me John stood high in college and seminary. It does not seem possible that it is all past, and that he has gone out of his old house forever, and is about to set up a home of his own. I thought when he was young I was bringing up somebody that would be a stay to me in my old age, and take the farm off my hands, bring his wife, when he got one, right over here, and we would all work together. That's the way of the world. Tug and work years and years to bring something about, and then see your plans all upset. But what am I saying? talking exactly like a heathen. Of course it is better, the way it has turned out. I wanted John to be a farmer and work for me, and the Lord wanted him to be a minister and work for him. Well, I am glad he had his way and did not let me have mine. I might have seen long ago, if I hadn't been blind as a bat, what was coming, by the way things went. That boy never took to farming. He did his work well, to be sure, to please me, but I could see he hated it all the same. He was fond of books, and was never so happy as when he was in school. I'm sorry, since I begin to get my eyes open, that I opposed him so much when he wanted to go to college, and that I grumbled and fretted because things did not go my own way. It looks like fighting against God, but I did not see it so then. John has accepted a call to the church in Belleville. I heard him preach his first sermon last Sunday, and I must say, had hard work to keep down my pride— John is a good-looking young man. He's what you might call handsome. He looks well in the pulpit, 
as if he belonged there. I hadn't an idea the boy could preach as he does. It did not sound so much like some beginner's sermons, all froth and words. John must have had a deep experience to preach like that. I might almost have thought that some of it came from Baxter or Bunyan, if I did not know he would sooner cut off his finger than do such a thing. I don't want to take any of the credit to myself, but if there is anything in the world that I have tried to do, it is to teach him to be true and clean throughout. I know John has been that. When he would come home on vacations, I used to look him over as soon as he got into the house. I am pretty sharp-sighted, if I am an old woman. John couldn't have deceived me very well. I always saw the same honest, pure boy that went away. He never smelled of tobacco or beer, and his eyes looked clear as crystals. When I think it all over, it seems as if the Lord had put great honor on a poor old woman like me to allow such a privilege as bringing up a minister for him. You'll think there's nothing in my head but John, and it's about true that there isn't. The boy wants me to break up housekeeping and come live with them, but I can't do that. The old farm has been my home too many years to think of leaving it now. I shall go right on. Peter and Dorcas have been with me now ten years, so it won't be much of a chore, after all, to carry on the farm. They know every crook and turn as well as I do. I've just had a letter from John, and nothing will do but I must go to Belleville and put things to rights in the little parsonage and be there to welcome him and Matty, as he calls her. I'm astonished that John should nickname his own wife. What's the use of putting an E to her name when it doesn't belong there? To think of a woman being willing to be called Lizzie or Katie or Jenny when she might have Elizabeth or Catherine or Jane, good substantial names. I shall call her Martha. I suppose I must humor the boy and drag my old bones over there. To be sure, it is not much of a journey, but I'm not so young as I used to be, and the snow is deep. I have to take such an early start in the morning, the stage starts before daylight, that I can't finish your letter till I get back. Thursday evening. Well, your letter has been laid by quite a spell. I've been and done up and got back. Of course, you will want to hear all about it. I took Dorcas with me to help. The parsonage is a pretty little white house with green blinds. John had been at work there himself for a week before he went away, putting down carpets and setting up furniture. His wife's folks bought all that. Then I gave John a horse and buggy, and cow, one of my best alderneys. I gave the dishes besides. I don't know, but I was a little extravagant, but I bought a china tea set. Maybe it's a whim, but I always think tea tastes better out of the little thin clear cups with pink flowers on them than it does out of the common ones. So Dorcas and I had work enough to do, unpacking and washing the dishes, and setting them up in the bit of a closet. Then we swept and made up the beds. John's wife's folks are well-to-do. They have supplied her with bedding, and that of the best, enough to last her always, I guess. The furniture is all nice, too. Plain, John says, but it doesn't look very plain to me. When we got all the rooms put in order, the place looked as pretty as a bird's nest. John's study has a green carpet on it that looks like moss, and the parlor carpet looks as if somebody had taken handfuls of little fine flowers and vines and sprinkled them all about on the white groundwork. The sitting-room carpet, too, is lively-looking. The furniture is brown, and two large windows let the sunshine pour in. Now that doesn't seem very nice to you in that hot country, does it? but you mustn't forget how you used to love the sunshine in your old home. I really enjoyed arranging it all, only I could not help thinking, 
What if she should be a little upstart and poke fun at me in my way of regulating? Well, we got it done the day we were expected. The baking and all. I took over a jar of butter, and then I put into that cellar and pantry everything that could be needed for housekeeping. Groceries, you know, flour and vegetables, and, well, everything. Then we baked up a lot of nice things. How pleasant it all looked to me when I sat down in the rocking chair waiting for them. The whole house was warm, the kitchen door stood open a little, and the tea kettle was singing on the stove. Everything was ready but making the cream biscuits. John is very fond of cream biscuits, and I always made them when I wanted to give him a special treat. By the time I had got my biscuits well in the oven and the tea table set, the sleigh drove to the door. I was so glad to see John back safe and well that I almost forgot he had a wife. When he introduced her, I expected her to put out three fingers, but instead she came and put both arms around my neck and gave me a real hug and warm kiss. She was dressed in some soft brown stuff. In fact, she was brown all over, brown eyes, brown hair, and brown ribbons. Everything matched. How she got ribbons to exactly match her hair and eyes I don't see. Her cheeks were just a little pink, like my hyacinths. Such a pretty, delicate little thing. I don't wonder John fell in love with her. She looks young. What can she know about housekeeping? She seems just as fit to take upon herself the management of a house and the cares of a minister's wife as a butterfly. I know it is said ministers are poor hands to pick out wives, but I did hope John would have a little common sense and not be taken by a pretty face. Well, I'm not going to croak. She's an affectionate little thing, anyhow, and treats me as if I were the greatest lady of the land. John thinks I don't see the roguish face he put on when I called her Martha, nor how her cheeks got pinker than usual, and she almost laughed, then turned it off. Young folks don't see into everything, though you couldn't make them believe it. I'm sure I don't care she has a pretty face, if she only makes John a good, loving, prudent wife. But dear me, I have my fears. She looks too cityfied to make a good housekeeper. I'll miss my guess if I don't find that house all sixes and sevens in three months' time. I must own up, too, that I'm a little bit disappointed, for, to tell the truth, I had a wife picked out for John myself, though he didn't know a breath about it. Things are queer, anyhow." It seems to me as if anybody could see with half an eye that Samantha Brown was the sort of wife he needed. You remember her mother, don't you, Cynthia Hancock? She married Eli Brown, and they have lived thirty years next neighbors to us. Samantha is just like her mother, smart and economical. She is a master hand at all sorts of work. It is hard to find her equal in making bread and biscuits and doughnuts, and such butter as she can make, sweet and yellow and solid. Not many butter makers like the Browns. Then Samantha can turn her hand to almost anything. She makes her own dresses, and she could have made John's shirts. She was a good scholar, too, when she was in school. To be sure, she has not what they call style. Neither does she look as if the north wind would blow her away. To my mind, she's a wholesome-looking girl, and I like her. But what is the use of talking of all this? I suppose if Providence had intended her for John, the boy would have taken a notion to her. I wish I could get over the habit of meddling and fretting about the way things go, as if the Lord needed any of my help to manage affairs. Only one can't help feeling sometimes that things are getting all wrong when you look at it one way. Now, why should John go and marry that little delicate creature, with her ribbons and ruffles and fine manners, who will most likely be sick half the time, and have to hire her housework done and her sewing in the bargain? When there stood Samantha Brown, strong and smart and sensible, and pious beside, ready to jump at the chance, of course. I know not. 
and what's more, I should never be wiser by fretting over it. I should think I would have learned a lesson when you were married. You never knew how much opposed I felt to your marrying a missionary. I was sure your health would break down, sure you were too young, sure you were not suited to the work, but how grandly it all turned out. He does know best. I want to speak of another matter now. You ask if I am satisfied that I am doing my share of the work our master left us to do. You did well to ask that question, Jane. I have been a little beetle-headed woman for years, I'll admit. When I had given some flannel to old Mrs. Batts for her rheumatism, and sent some potatoes and wood to the only other poor family we had, and put a dollar here and there among the different objects, I seemed to feel as if I had done my part. But I've had what you might call an experience, and you were the only living soul I shall ever tell it to. I always had my own way of keeping my accounts. Whenever I sold anything, I felt that part of it belonged to the Lord, a wonderful small part, though. So one of the columns held what was set aside for him, the other column was for myself. But one day when I was having my yearly reckoning, it struck me, all of a sudden, what a difference there was in the columns when they were footed up. How much better I had treated myself than I had my Lord. I didn't like the looks of it all. The five dollars that I had set down for foreign missions, that had seemed so large to me, dwindled away to nothing. It seemed as if the master was sitting over against the treasury again, seeing not what all the people put in, but me only, of the whole world, as if he stood and went over that account book with me, and then gave me such a look, something as he gave to Peter. Then my heart melted, and I saw everything clear as day for a few minutes. This life, and the next one, and how I had been robbing him. That was the most wonderful night I ever spent. There was no sleeping done by me. I made an assignment of farm and everything to my dear Lord, and such peace and comfort as I had in doing it. Does he send his angels down yet to speak to stupid souls, or even come himself, maybe? Blessed, gracious master. He made the way very plain to me, for here comes your letter telling how much you need money in your mission for another school building, how heathen children are turned away because you have no room for them. I have been praying for years a kind of half-hearted word about all heathen being brought to Christ, and here they were trying to come and could not, because I would not stretch out my hand and give them a lift. The Lord's golden grain growing on every side of me, field on field, and I hoarding it away. I said to myself, Now, Hannah Adams, suppose you just turn things around for this year at least. Put yourself in that other column. So I did. After paying the hired help and putting by enough for necessaries, I doled out to myself for clothes and anything else I wanted, just the sum I used to give away, and it was precious little, I can tell you. Then I took the rest, except for some of our Maplewood poor, and some of our own church, and carried it to the bank. And here's the check for you. Take it and build a schoolhouse. Perhaps it will hire a teacher for a year beside. I had to do it up in short order, for Satan came parleying round. When I woke up in the night, telling me I was foolish to give so much, and would end my days in the poorhouse and all that. I was afraid if I waited that I should begin to agree with him, but I shall be mistaken if it doesn't turn out the best investment I ever made. If I wasn't so old, I would go myself and help you. Now, don't you go to thinking that I tell all this in a boasting spirit. I can say with Paul, where is boasting, then? It is excluded. Nothing but shame and confusion of face belongs to me. Remember, there have been years and years of my life that I have been doling out little bits to him, and all that time came seed time and harvest, the rains, the winds, and the sunshine, everything my crops needed, 
and I gathered them in and stored them up and pulled down my barns and built greater, like that other fool, and all the while that command upon me, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, and I getting round it by handing out a dollar or two. Oh, I wonder he took such gentle means as he did to bring me to my senses, and make me know it is more blessed to give than to receive. Martha promised to write me a long letter every week or two, to make up for taking John away from me, she said. The child means to, I suppose, but I don't expect it. I know just what young folks' promises amount to. If she does it, I'll send them to you sometimes, and then you can get acquainted with her, too, for it is one of the best ways of knowing what people are made of, that is, if they write honest letters. What would we have done all these years without yours? They are so bright and good, I really think they ought to be published, for you tell all the little things that one wants to know about a strange people. Good-bye, dear Jane. May our Heavenly Father bless you more and more. Your loving sister, Hannah Adams End of chapter 1